First John. And I know many of you are looking at your watches saying he's starting at 11.30. (laughs) Yep. The title of the sermon is Generational Encouragement. Generational Encouragement. 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 14. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. The Apostle John is writing. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you've known the Father. 14, I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Lord, help us as we study. John is the most unusual writer in the New Testament. It's not because his writing is so enigmatic you can't figure it out. It's just the other writings seem to dominate the style of communication uh, that, that the Lord uses to give us the greatest amount of truth. And that through the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very chronological in their orientation, either clumping them by way of miracles or going directly from the birth of Christ to the resurrection and then the deployment of the disciples. But the book of John, the Gospel of John, is very different than all the other three. And these three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, are all different than the kind of writing that Paul uses in order to communicate truth. John is very pointed He's very targeted, and he comes usually from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John at one topic in about 50 different ways, telling people to love one another. That's all he's talking about, love one another. Uh, God is love, therefore love one another. If you say you don't, if you, if, you, if you don't love your brother who you can't see, how can you love God who you cannot see? Love one another. If every angle possible, he's trying to help people to understand that love is a foundation of all good thought and good action. If we don't do that, we aren't doing anything well. And here in 1 John, he understands <clears throat> something about what family looks like, what it, what it should be. Uh, in, in terms of the different uh, texture of different age groups and how we relate together to form one cohesive group called the family of God. And he's doing his best to try to help everyone understand what your major role is. Now, simply because they have a major role in this passage doesn't, believe they're mi- doesn't mean that their minor roles are insignificant. That everybody at some point ought to be able to fall in all three of these categories. Children, youth, parents. That we ought to, at some level, find ourselves being able to embrace the concepts that bless or define each one of these categories because we need them. Even though I'm not a child, I am really grateful for the salvation experience I had when I first got right. And I asked God, like David, to restore to me the joy of my salvation. I want to remember what it was like again to just enjoy the fact that I have been forgiven and I know Daddy God. I didn't know much else when I got right with God, but those two things were pretty crystal clear. And it was because I knew how much of a sinner I was. In the back of my mind, there was always this this kind of splinter 
that sooner or later, the, the bad I had done was going to catch up with me. My consequences were going to outrun me and tear me down, destroy me. But when God came to me through an agent, and as someone preached the gospel, I was so, so happy that somebody had taken my consequences. That no longer did I have to suffer the penalty for my misdeeds. And now I was free. Wow, you children, you understand what it means to be forgiven. You know what it means to have the lift of all of your sin and, 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 and all of your misdeeds. The lift come from your shoulders. It was a beautiful thing. You young men, you understand what it means to overcome the evil one. You're strong. You fathers, you understand something about what it means to have perspective. You know him who is from the beginning. Here, John is doing what he can to try to help the church understand how these three aspects are important to us understanding how family ought to work. John understands something about family. Probably, maybe a little bit differently, if not more, than the rest of the disciples. Because he was the one that Jesus had appointed, appointed to care for his mama. Now, he already had a mama. Remember that woman that came to Jesus and said, can my two sons sit on your right and your left? That was James and John's mama. John had a brother named James. Mama came, and the disciples were really mad at James and John. They weren't so mad, though they were, that they were asking to be seated at the right and left hand whenever Jesus came into his kingdom, and they thought that was going to be on earth, meaning somebody was going to be chief of staff, and somebody was going to be secretary of state. James and John were going to be on those two sides. And, and, and they were mad enough about that, but, but it was like, this. you're going to use your mama? Dude, Really? I mean, you're going to tug on Jesus' heartstrings like that? Use your mama? You didn't have the guts to go ask him yourself. What is wrong with you? Using your mama. Man, that ain't right. That just ain't right. They were mad on a bunch of levels. They thought Jesus was going to set up a kingdom here. That mama was at the cross with Jesus. And then his mother, Jesus' mother, was at the cross. The night before, all the disciples had fled. They came for Jesus. They took him. They thought Jesus was going to have his massive defense moment at that time. That's why Peter took his sword and Peter tried to defend Jesus and, 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 and slay the people who were trying to apprehend him. He did a terrible job of it, but he tried. And when he realized that Jesus wasn't for him defending, meaning he, he, he took out his sword, Peter did, and, and lashed out at somebody. And he cut off a, a high priest's ear. So he had some force. He wanted to do some damage. I mean, it wasn't just a little tap on the head. He came down with some force, and the ear came off a guy. Now, that tells you a couple of things. He was wild in his aim, and that he's probably, and that's because he's probably not a very good soldier. The ear is not the thing you want to go for if you're trying to defend yourself. And then everybody's thinking, violence has occurred. We can do so much more to these guys now. And then Jesus reaches out and says, wait, 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 wait. Reaches out and takes the ear that's on the ground, slaps it back on Malchus's head, who happens to be the, high, the, servant's, uh, the, the uh, servant of the high priest, slaps it back on his head and says, that's enough. Now, you would think that would be enough, the kind of enough that Jesus was trying to say is enough for everybody there to not only stop fighting, but to say, you demand. <laughs> you, didn't, I, you didn't even use any stitches, bro. 
the thing just went right back on his head. How'd that happen? You'd think everybody would think a miracle just occurred. And what are we doing? What are we doing? The God just helped his enemy. What are we doing? Bow. Bow now. Bow now. And it, it didn't do any good. Any good. You, you think sometimes if your friend just sees a miracle, they'll repent. Miracles aren't supposed to be for that. Miracles are supposed to be to get the person who needs one out of it. It is not supposed to be the verification that God exists. Now, if it does, that's fine, but that's not the purpose of it. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any help. And if people choose to ignore all the signs that he's already given, a miracle won't help. John was there, and John realizes stuff is is going wrong. He runs away along with the other disciples. And, And somebody tries to grab John as he's running, trying to apprehend him. And John keeps running so quickly that he runs out of his cloak. And so I don't know what he looked like, but he didn't have a lot on. He was streaking out of the Garden of Gethsemane. All the other disciples can't be seen for another day and a half. But John shows up the next day at the cross with his mama and with Jesus' mama. And we believe with Mary of Magdala. All three of them were named Mary. Mary was a very popular name. And Jesus Of the seven last words he says on the cross, one of them is this. Mary, behold your son. Looking at John. John, take care of my mama. See, a good Jewish boy would always make sure that his mama had somebody to take care of her. He wouldn't leave her without that. And John was at the cross. And John's sitting there thinking, I can do no other. But I got a mama, you know that, right? I got one I got to care for, but I'm your servant. He artificially tied family, artificially put people together to such a degree that even those who did not have the same DNA felt like they did. David Webb is family to me. We don't have the same last name, but he has a need. I meet it. He's in trouble. I come running. We've been together for almost 40 years. And he has had to, I've helped him be a really good Christian. Not through equipping, but he's had to learn how to endure and be patient and be kind. I've helped my wife become, I I help everybody (laughs) become a really good Christian. They got to tap into all the spiritual gifts to hang with me. But there's no offense that will separate me from him. Not one. Not one. Because we were put together at the cross. There are some people that Jesus puts together at the cross. I can't be with everybody. But I know those people he's put me with. And to those people I stick. John knew something about relationship that was different than Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, Bartholomew, Judas. He knew something different because he was artificially spiritually placed with another human being in a way that was demanding familial tie 
And so his writings come out very different than everybody else's. He interpreted all of that in his writings, say the, the, the gospel. He says repeatedly, and the disciple whom Jesus loved did such and such. Now, maybe he just didn't want to use the first person, say, me. I did this. I don't know. He was trying to, trying to be deferring. But there are so many other ways that you could be deferring other than to describe yourself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, I don't think he was trying to say Jesus didn't love the other ones. But he said it in such a way that makes you have to say what I'm saying now to help interpret what he meant. He could have said it a lot of different ways. But he understood something. And it didn't mean that Jesus didn't love the others or that he loved John more. But it can mean that he loved John differently. You can love differently and love the same. In terms of quantity, intensity, love the same. But you love each person differently. I can't take love off the rack for any of my children. It's got to be tailor-made. I don't love my daughters like I love my sons. I hug and kiss on my daughters so much. My daughter, Brooke, she sees me coming and just about runs. She doesn't because she's polite, but she knows I'm coming with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. I never do that to my boys. <laughs> Ever. I, sh I hit them in the chest. <laughs> That's how I greet my boys. What's up, great one? Pow. <laughs> you love people differently. He loved John differently. And as a result, John's writings are very different. He emphasizes family and love and tenderness unlike any other apostle. In fact, he's, he's nicknamed the apostle of love. And here he says, let me help you with how family is supposed to work in church. Children have this emphasis. Young men, young women have this emphasis. Youth have this emphasis. And older people, fathers, mothers, parents have this emphasis. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't cross-emphasize. But it does mean that these are the major things that need to be brought out so that everybody can benefit from everybody else's strength. Oh, children, you understand what it means to be forgiven. And you understand what it means to know the Father. As I said, forgiveness for me when I first got right with God, it was so great. It was just so great. I was so changed at 20 years old. So transformed on the inside at Indiana University from the day I got born again, the next day I would walk out and it was, it was just, I was weird. I was just flat weird. I didn't know a whole lot of Bible yet, but I was weird. And I'd walk out and I'd, I'd breathe the air and I'd look at the squirrels and I'd say, hello. <laughs> it's just stupid, just flat stupid. But I was so transformed, I was trying to figure out what is this and how am I supposed to be new? How am I supposed to relate to my environment brand new? I did not know. Then I had somebody come along and disciple me and say, don't talk to animals. <laughs> You're not Dr. Doolittle. I said, okay, I get that. I, I, I was just seeing, you know, <laughs> just trying it out. All things were messed up in my soul. And I was able, in, in a quick order, in quick order, to figure out what it looked like to go due north. And that people helped me and they began to teach me the Bible and help me understand how and why it was written and the emphases that needed to be incorporated in my life so I could live in victory, not defeat. I grew fast. I grew fast. Not necessarily well, but fast. When I say not well, I didn't have a whole lot of wisdom, but I grew to such an extent 
<laughs> from the day I got right with God to the time I went in ministry was seven weeks and three, excuse me, seven months and three weeks. I got born again at the end of March. I was in ministry by December, raising my support full-time on campus, came here 16 months after I got right with God to help start the church. I was 21 years old. I threw myself into the kingdom. I was preaching on campus regularly, and I was terrible at the start. I mean terrible, horrible, so bad that when I was standing on a wall giving my testimony to a whole bunch of students at lunch, my pastor was there, and I was standing on this wall talking, and I wasn't talking Bible. It was very humanistic. It was very touchy-feely. It was very psychoanalytical. I had just come out of a psychology class. It was very bad. And my, 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 my pastor pulled on my pants leg and said, come down. I was happy about what I said. I was so happy. I felt great. I said, how'd it go? He said, we have room for improvement. And he discipled me. In three months, I was leading people to Jesus on the street, preaching open air on Indiana University's campus in between classes, 15 minutes. That's all I'd need to get a conversation with a whole bunch of kids. I wasn't hollering and screaming. I was conversing like I'm doing with you. And I'd start with something like, does anybody believe there are any absolutes? They walk on by. Anybody believe? Are there any absolutes? That's all I'm asking. Somebody, give me, give me, give me your thoughts. Are there any absolutes? Somebody would hear me get frustrated. He just came out of his pop psychology class. He says, no, there are no absolutes. I said, oh, thank you very much. But are you absolutely sure? <laughs> because you just made an absolute. And what gives you the privilege and the right to make an absolute? Because you said there are no absolutes, and that's an absolute. Do you know without any doubt? Because I know somebody who says there are some absolutes and he's got the right to be able to say that. And we talk about the Bible and how relevant it was and how important it is. And, and then a crowd would gather and I'd preach the gospel and people get born again. I did that regularly, regularly. All because I understood something wonderful about what it meant to be forgiven and all I wanted was other people to get it to. I knew what it meant to be in a family. I mean, God now called me his boy. David Webb is in the business of trying to put the lonely in families, kids that have no homes. And you know one of the awkward things? The beauty of adoption is, is, is unparalleled in any kind of, of, of artificial incorporation of people. Unparalleled. You can't join an organization, become a member of something, be a, part of, a partner in a, in a firm. Nothing is like being incorporated into a brand new family as a child. Nothing. And yet there is one awkward moment that can mess it all up. It's when can I call you mom and dad? The child doesn't want to ever feel rejected because that's all he's felt all his life. And so he doesn't want to make the, the first foray. He's hoping that somehow mom and dad will let them know they can now call them mom and dad. But this dance goes through, and if the parents don't know, then everybody's kind of awkward around this moment. Is there supposed to be a crystalline time when there's this <gasps> moment and everybody realizes, okay, now we have the conversation. When does it happen? The beautiful thing is when you get born again, when you get instituted into the family of God, it is instantaneous where he lets you know you're mine. 
I give you my name. I identify you by my name. It was so instantaneous. The combination of forgiveness and the strength of knowing that my daddy was backing me in the proclamation of his gospel made me much more bold on the campus than I ever should have been. Nobody should have put me in ministry in seven months and three weeks. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, you've been born again for a little bit. You still don't qualify. I don't know why in the world anybody thought it was a good idea except for the fact I knew how forgiven I was and who I, whose I was. It changed my life. Now, I was 20. And so I wasn't four. Which meant I got the combination of then understanding something about what it meant to be forgiven, know the Father, and having some strength. I was a young man. I could go out and do stuff. I could stay up till 2 a.m. ministering the gospel to somebody in my, my dorm room, eating pizza late at night, get up at 7 and go to class. I could do that and not think twice about it. Have no heartburn from the pizza. I'm good. I'm good. I had some power. I write to you young men because you're strong. We need the strength of youth to help us get to where we need to be in the body of Christ. I'm doing what I can to make great decisions so that we don't have to overcome obstacles that are artificial by bad decisions. I'm doing what I can to make sure that we've got the right amount of resources in the right spot, deploying the right people in the right place. But I can't let my wisdom be that which brings progress only. I need some people who are just dang the torpedoes straight ahead. I want to be first. I'm going to be out there doing it, Pastor. I need Stephen Laws. There's a reason that the military does not recruit 61-year-olds. Because we got too many questions. Now, what's that boot camp going to be about again? How many miles I got to run? In what time? And let me think about it for a minute. You tell me. Somebody offers me the opportunity to go to plant a church. I got to pray for like two months. <laughs> I got to fast for a little bit. I don't know. I'm a grandpa. A lot of responsibilities. Retirement around the corner. An 18-year-old, where are we going, sir? <laughs> Young people got this thing. Point me in the right direction. I'll hit the target. Young men. You are strong. Young people, you are strong. The way the church does what it does is a combination of all this. The wisdom to deploy well. The understanding of the climate. How to pray. Making sure that the chemistry between people is right. Deploying all of that together at the same time. Yet, not thinking that somehow your, your, your recipe is going to work without the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of young people to change the world. There are very few revolutions any place, politically or spiritually, that have ever happened without young people. And please, we don't know exactly how old the disciples were, but please understand, they were not me. They were all younger. We think John may have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 when Jesus called him. We think, we don't know. And Peter was probably the elder at 30. They were all young, had no clue about what was next. And yet Jesus chose people that were younger in order to do what needed to be done, even though they were really old people that were smart. God doesn't mind using young people, even though he knows they're going to make a lot of mistakes. He can fix that. 
He can't help people that have no motivation. Youth, strength. And daddies, parents, moms, dads, we have perspective. We understand stuff. We know him who has been from the beginning. When a mistake is made by a young person, sometimes they think it's the end. Life has just become horrible. They don't want to do it. They don't want to get out of bed. They're talking about me on social media. My life is over. I'll never recover from this. We who have made more mistakes usually than we've had successes can be that stabilizing force to those young people who would always be depressed about the last mistake they made and live in the prison of the consequence they think is coming. No, baby girl, listen. You're going to be all right, I promise you. Daddy did this one time. Ah, It was bad. But the thing is, our God is so good. He is really, he can do stuff we can't do. He can make your progress seem as if the mistake you made when you get to the end and the, and, 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 and the, the, the destiny, you can make it seem as if the mistake you made was a part of your progress. Now, you shouldn't have done the stupid. You, you shouldn't have done the stupid. The stupid was stupid. You shouldn't have done that. But my God is so restorative and so miraculous that he can step in the midst of time because he's outside of time. He created time. He's the only eternal. He's the one that can manipulate time. He can make time speed up or slow down for you. He can make you speed up or slow down for time. It doesn't matter. He controls it all. Parents, parents godly people, older folks, know him who is from the beginning. They got perspective. They've lived long enough to know you can recover from your failures. And he can make it seem as if you needed that to happen in order to get here. <laughs> we need people like me, people like you, who can give young people hope. And to sometimes put a pin in their balloon that is rising. Those unusual savants, prodigies that are just so successful out of the gate, they are making, you know, they're they're rising to partner at 27. And everything is coming to them perfectly in timing. They're making great decisions. And they think, I am on my way. Nothing can stop me now. Wait a minute. There is no such thing as unbridled and uninterrupted success. Be careful. Make sure you're, you're, you're moderating your life to such a degree that you're worshiping and thanking him for the success you've gotten rather than thinking that you did all this yourself because pride will come before fall. And I'm rejoicing with you in your quick progress. That's cool. But you can fall just as quickly. So... Get to church, get on your knees, and tithe. (laughs) Give. Give a thanksgiving offering. Let your worship be expressed in such a way that your, 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 your success doesn't become your downfall. Perspective can be given from dads. And lastly, these young men, young people have the power to overcome the evil one. And I'm convinced that he tied that to the idea that the word of God abides in them. Boy, we need this word. We need this word. And the, and the insecurity of direction for young people who realize, I'm not a baby anymore, but I, I, I'm not an old person, and I really need to have some direction in my life. The insecurity of not knowing where to go, 
drives people who love God to the word because it gives direction. It gives them help about what they need to do today and tomorrow, how they ought to be, the kind of person he's created them to be. And so they are in the word regularly, regularly to try to build a framework in which they can live. Architect something in terms of a lifestyle that helps them make great decisions for tomorrow. They are in this word regularly. And as a result, when the enemy comes to them, they got something to fight with. They don't just have their experience. They don't have their mama's experience. They don't have their uncle's deacon board experience. They have their own experience from the word that allows them to battle the enemy well. And all of us need to get this. This isn't just a young person thing. This is an everybody thing. You need to read your Bible every day of your life. I figure out how to get that in about every sermon. Every day of your life, you need to read your Bible because in it are the tools that help build you well and give you the the armament you need to fight well. The enemy hates you. Why? Because he hates God and you are made in his image. You look too much like him even though you don't look much like him. There's not much of you left that resembles him, but there's enough left whereby the enemy hates you. And he can't get to God, so he tries to get you. And generally speaking, he's not going to marshal all of his forces as long as you are complying with his will. But as soon as you start doing the will of God, as soon as you get born again and leave his kingdom and transfer to another kingdom, he says, wait, 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 this this, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. And sometimes he'll even allow a Christian just to go on to heaven as long as you don't do any damage here. Okay, you're not in, in my world anymore. But as long as you don't tear up anything I'm trying to build, I'll let you slide. But when you, when you start targeting him and start intentionally taking people who are in his kingdom out, when you start trying to buy property, when you start trying to gain, gain re- real estate, spiritually speaking, in his world, people of influence that he used to use in order to get his will done, now you're using them in order to see the will of God done. When you start doing that, you become somebody that has a big target on your life. And you cannot battle simply by self-discipline. You can't battle by force of will. The only thing he listens to is the word of Almighty God. And it's got to be in here. It's got to be in here. Now, if you don't have it, there's nothing wrong with calling somebody who does and say, give me a passage about this. But it would be better if you were the person that somebody called. Get the word on the inside of you. If anybody did not need the word when he encountered the devil, it would be Jesus because he could make it up as he went along and it would be fine because he's God. It'd be fine. But when the devil came to him after 40 days of fasting, he said to Jesus, turn this stone to bread. Jesus could have said, no. Would have been right. Would have been right. But he, he went to Deuteronomy. What God had already said. It said, "Mm, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Oh, nobody ever used about, you got, you know your, oh, okay, 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 I got you, I got you. Um, You know, the word says if you jump off off a high place, that the, the angels will give charge concerning you. You won't even strike your foot against the stone. It'll be like you just float right on down. Do that. Let's go to the top of the temple and see how it works. Jesus said, uh, 
Yeah, it says that. You, got, you know your Bible too, huh? Psalm 91? Okay, but it also says there are hierarchy of Scripture. So some Scriptures govern other Scriptures. And it says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there'd be no point in doing that except to impress you. Now, a lot of that was my narrative. <laughs> so the enemy says, man, I can't beat this guy. I can't get him. I know what I'll do. The one thing that a man loves more than anything more than anything, is power. I'm not going to appeal to him on these little, little things. I'll give you, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Here, I'll give them to you if you just bow before me. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Three passages of scripture. And it was over, it says the devil left him. The only thing he respects is this word. Get in this word so you can fight him well. Overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace and power. All of us to live right and to live well in these areas. Thank you for delineating well the categories that help make a church family most healthy. Is there anybody this morning who has yet to give their heart to Christ? Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be, and you'd like to make a shift today and come on back home. If you fit in either one of those two categories, today is a great day to get right with God. Anybody at all, raise your hand high if you fit in those categories. Online as well. Anybody at all, raise it high. And once it's up, you can put it down. Anybody. All right, you who are online, many of you are contemplating what it means to serve God with all of your heart. Today is a great day to make a shift. If that's you, pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I have lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, go ahead and check the box at the bottom of the chat. Somebody will get in contact with you and we'll send you one of these. You'll be able to pick one of these up if you want to come by. In here, there's a Bible, a Bible study, pen and a pad. It's going to help you understand what it means to be a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. All we want you to do is be successful in the decision you've made.